church this morning. Um, I am not preaching today. Um, one of my favorite friends and preachers and fellow sister in Christ um, is going to be preaching today. I am going to say a word or two, however, before May comes up, um, about the Supreme Court's ruling this past week. I am not going to say a whole lot because then I'm going to want to preach and I don't want to do that. I want to honor my fellow sister today. We will address it, talk about it in the upcoming weeks. Those of you that come to New Community know we do not shy away from difficult, controversial topics. But we stare them in the face and address it from Scripture and in community. Let me say this, though, today. What will set this church apart? Not because we're better than others. What will set this church apart if we were to do this? Is if people that actually disagree on this issue with deep convictions. This church would be different if two groups of people that actually disagree on this issue. And I know for a fact that there are many of you who disagree with your fellow brothers and sisters on this issue. What will set us apart is if we became a community that instead of talking at each other about how we feel, we talked with in community. What will set this church apart is if we actually manage somehow to be the alternate city that became a place where two groups of people that disagreed on this issue would be in community, would be in relationship, and actually speak truth and love. Amen? Okay. All right. (laughs) I don't think I'm saying anything profound or controversial. All I'm simply saying And again, I've got a lot more to say in upcoming. All I'm simply saying is that what will set this apart, because let's just be honest, look at the larger Christian landscape in this country, and this is being divided right now in the middle, and group over here, group over here, using the Bible, are saying, I want nothing to do with you. That will not be our church. We will somehow, by the power of the Holy Spirit, stay in community, in relationship, (laughs) even if we disagree. Amen? So I will have a lot more to say, but I just want to put this out there. I want to put this, if you want to, if we want to truly be a countercultural community of Jesus, We're called to do that. We're called to do that. And if you feel like you don't have the patience, the love, the compassion, so on and so forth to be able to do that, well, this is the reason why we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Because I don't think apart from the Spirit, that's possible. I don't think it is. So, like I said, I'll have a lot more to say in the upcoming weeks about this and what does it mean for us as a church to be in community. We will not shy away from it. 
but nor will we break fellowship and relationship over this. It's not who we are. May, well, I don't want to. Uh, May, I've known May since we were in high school. Yeah, what? Like, we literally, high school, guys. I'm totally dating myself uh, way back when. Uh, and then we just kind of lost touch for a while. And then I saw May about five, six years ago uh, out there. And we were able to connect. Many of you know May because you've been blessed by her. Um, she just finished her Ph.D., in Old Testament. Woohoo! <laughs> she just finished her PhD in Old Testament at Trinity. And uh, for the last eight, nine months, it's really been just seeking God's heart and provision for next steps because professorships and positions are hard to come by. But God opened doors. And May, at the end of July, will be leaving us to go to the wastelands of central Indiana. Don't mean to offend. She's going to Taylor University to teach Hebrew and Old Testament, other courses. And uh, some of you know she's been involved as part of the prayer team. And it's been an enormous blessing to those of you that have been able to minister with her. She's a dear sister of ours with an amazing heart, with an enormous spiritual discernment gift and gift of wisdom. And uh, I asked her before she left to preach and to share God's heart with us. And so, if you will welcome her with a big hand as she comes and gives God's word. Come on up, man. I totally embarrassed you, didn't I? Let's pray for me. Father, we thank you for our sister. We thank you that you... have so faithfully gifted this church body with men and women and uh, with spiritual gifts to equip, to empower, to prepare, as the word says in Ephesians 4, to help us mature into the community that you call us to be. And May has been instrumental in that in many ways. Father, we pray this morning that your anointing of your spirit will rest on her. We pray this morning as she shares with us on what it means to wait on God, to wait on God, that you would speak powerfully and clearly in and through her. Meet us where we are in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Is it working? Okay, great. All right, good morning, new community, and <laughs> thank you for that warm welcome and for embarrassing me. Yes, uh, we do go way back. <laughs> so, um, so when Pastor Peter asked me to share, you know, I was thinking about, you know, what is it that God's been teaching me, and what has it been that God's been walking me through? And I have to say, I was thinking about it, and I thought, you know what? I hate waiting, (laughs) but it's something that God's been doing in my life, putting me in the waiting room. Uh, Whether, uh, I mean, even it can come to something so small as like traffic or uh, standing in line or, but especially when I have a need for something. Uh, Waiting is just 
very hard and very excruciating uh, for me. But uh, like I said, however, it just seems like God keeps putting me in the waiting room. And today's passage is uh, something that speaks to what it means to be waiting on God and what the Bible tells us uh, about waiting on God. So are you experiencing a time of waiting in your life? Um, are you waiting for a job, maybe waiting for um, a spouse, a diagnosis, healing, a change in your circumstance, um, deliverance from a certain situation or circumstance? I think we all experience some sort of waiting in our lives. So we have to see what the Bible tells us and what the Bible can speak to us about this kind of waiting and what it means to wait on the Lord. So today's passage is from Isaiah 40. And I'm going to go ahead and read the whole chapter first. But our focus today will really be mainly on the, the last few verses, so verses 27 to 31. But I'm just going to go ahead and start us to give us a context so that we can look at the whole book of Isaiah 40 and then uh, moving into the verses that we want to focus on. Okay, so please follow along as I read. So, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lamb in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He, he gently leads those who have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales, and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for the altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, 
and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rule of this world, rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner they take root in the ground. Then he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? And why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is the word of the Lord. Will you please pray with me? Father, we just ask that you would come, uh, that you would speak through your word, that you would teach us um, from your word today, that you would help us to wait on you, that you would remind us of the truth in your word, and that you would um, encourage those who need to be encouraged, uh, remind those who need to be reminded, uh, rebuke us, Lord, if we need rebuking, and Lord, bring us, Lord, to, to just find hope and rest in you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so first, because um, of who I am, I want to give you the context of Isaiah 40. So where does Isaiah 40 fall in the book of Isaiah? So that we don't just pull out and lift out these verses, um, especially the last verses from this chapter. How do, we, how do we put it in the context of the whole book of Isaiah? So first, the reoccurring themes uh, in the book of Isaiah from chapter 7 through 39 uh, was that God could be trusted in the face of threats from surrounding nations. So, but the people of God were continually turning to these other nations as for help. So they were not looking to the Lord, but looking to the nations. And God's response to them was to say that these other nations will actually fail them and that the result would actually be destruction, their destruction, and sometimes from the very hands of the people in which, which they trusted. But nevertheless, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah declares that God's trustworthiness was so great that even after the well-deserved destruction that had come upon the people of Israel, God will not forsake his own. But he's going to deliver them from what has overtaken them. So we see that in Isaiah 7, Isaiah 30, uh, 9 to 33. 
And scholars, some of the scholars, actually believe that Isaiah 40 begins a section in, a bo- in the book of Isaiah that is a response to the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the Israelites to Babylon in 586 B.C. Because the Israelites were disobedient and didn't listen to the prophets, the Babylonians took over, destroyed Jerusalem, and took most of the population in exile to Babylon. And they weren't really even allowed to return until 538 uh, BC when the Persians uh, took over and defeated the Babylonians. So actually, my own dissertation was in the Book of Lamentations, which spoke about uh, the destruction and the suffering and people's response during this time uh, of the of this exile and the destruction of Jerusalem. And this passage today in chapter 40 is just the beginning of a section viewed by some scholars as even like a a response to the cries found in Lamentations. It's very significant that this book begins with comfort, comfort my people, because in the book of Lamentations, there's this refrain in chapter 1 saying there is no comforter. So God is saying here in chapter 40 in Isaiah, answering the people who are suffering, comfort, comfort, I'm the one to bring you comfort. So it, it opens up this section like that, and that's how the Lord opens this up. So today's passage then is based utterly on the unmerited grace of God. So he was not required to deliver his people and they had, he had amply warned them through prophets over and over again, don't trust in these nations because there's going to be consequences to their disbelief and trust in other nations and other gods. And God would have no obligation whatsoever to deliver them had they done this. Yet in this chapter, we see from this chapter a series of chapters from 40 to 48 that speaks of a God who knows that his people had forso- like forsook him, but nevertheless he still promises to redeem them. This is significant because it has to be foundational for our understanding as we wait on God. It has to be foundational to know that it's unmerited. It's this this grace that because we have this relationship with him. And especially as New Testament believers, God has redeemed us from our sins through Jesus Christ. And that's why we can come into his presence. That's why we can even wait on him. And this is a good word for us today to remember as we approach this whole idea about waiting on God, it has to be foundational that we see that it's the unmerited grace of God by which we stand. So, even when we've sinned or even when we feel distant from God, we can still turn to him. So in turning, it's just like in turning from lament to hope. So I don't know if some of you guys are waiting, and some of you guys may be going through some real deep suffering. Some of you guys may even be questioning, like, you know, why, why is this happening to me? Have I sinned? You know, am I away from the Lord? Is, a, is, is it any hope to even wait on God? Is there even a place for me to wait on God? And I think that today we do have that hope. And in Romans 8.38 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So even if as the Israelites had sinned and they went into exile and they were suffering, the Lord responds in the same way if you are in that situation, the Lord, if you turn to him, you can wait on him and he hears you as well. So let's go ahead and look at the verses that we're going to focus on today. So that was just in a nutshell, really, really basic, 
of what kind of, you know, where this chapter falls in the book of Isaiah and what are some of the themes that, that cover that. So let's go ahead and look at verse 27. So it says here, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my cause is disregarded by my God? Notice the use of Jacob, Israel, and my God. This usage is significant because these are people who have a relationship with God. They're not strangers to him. They know him. They have a covenant relationship with him. But what is it in their words? What are they saying, actually? They're complaining. They're complaining that God doesn't see their way and that he doesn't care about their cause. So at the heart of these very questions is the questions I think that we all ask when we're suffering and waiting. Why doesn't God do something? Doesn't he care? Is he not able? I think those are the, the heart, the very heart when we're waiting and we don't see anything happening. Those are some of the things that I think all of us question in our own heart. You know, how come God's not doing anything for me? Does he even care? Does he even see? Is he even able? Or should I just, be, you know, like whatever, I don't care. You know, do we just become hopeless about it? So just as these people, Jacob and Israel, and Isaiah is saying to them, you know, uh, why are you saying these things? Um, in the same way, they're questioning God. I think in the same way we're questioning God sometimes when we go through these things. And questioning God, this is just more of an aside. It's not, like if you notice, God doesn't like crush them and say, look, you can't ask me any questions. Who are you to say anything to me? In fact, he actually engages them. He engages their questions. So when we're in difficulty, when we're in waiting, you know, it's, we can ask the Lord. We can have a relationship where we can ask him and that he engages us. And that's just a wonderful thing about the kind of God that we serve. And notice, um, however, though we must be teachable in that engagement with the Lord, that we need to be teachable to what he says. So as we question, as we talk with him, as we deal with him, we also need to be uh, teachable to the things that he says to us. So if you notice in chapters uh, 40, verse 1 through 11, it talks about um, how God cares. So the whole book in the beginning is about how God cares. Comfort my people, he comes as a shepherd. Then in verse 12 to 26, it tells of his power. So it's really answering those questions. Does he not care? Is he not able? So these things have been already answered, and we come down now to see what Isaiah is saying to the people. So in verse 28, it says, it says, do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. This harkens back to the earlier verses from chapters 12 to 26. But I, I mean, uh, verse 12 to 26. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to look at verse 26 and just the snippet of it to talk about God's power and his sovereignty. So in verse 26, it says, Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these things? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So, you know, I was thinking as I was looking at this, you know, what's, in a, what's a, like a modern day equivalent? You know, here you hear, we see a litany of things of God's sovereignty, of his power. You know, Isaiah goes through that. So I found this. Uh, and I, I think it's pretty accurate, but 
You never know what you find on the internet these days, but <laughs> hopefully this is accurate. So maybe a modern equivalence to show us the scale of God's power and who he is. So we usually think of stars as being loosely scattered throughout the vast expanse of outer space. However, stars are not spread out, but lumped together in enormous groups called galaxies. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, for example, is over 90,000 light years wide. This means if you were traveling at the speed of light, 186,282 miles per second, it would take you 90,000 years to get from one side to the other side. Although our galaxy is incredibly huge, it is only a small speck in comparison to the rest of the universe. There are at least one billion galaxies in the universe. Most galaxies consist of 10 to 100 billion suns or stars. Our Milky Way, however, has around 200 to 400 billion stars. And there are some galaxies that have over 50 trillion stars. When we look up at night and see the stars, stars scattered throughout the sky, we usually think we are seeing the various stars scattered throughout the whole universe. In reality, though, we are only seeing the stars in our own galaxy. And even then, it's only a small portion of them, about 3,000 stars. Think about it. God created all the galaxies, and he's much greater than what we think. And like when I thought about this, and as I was reading this illustration, you know, it kind of put it into, I mean, like, we read in the Bible, you know, he created the heavens, he created... But when you read it from this standpoint, and you just realize just how magnificent and how great our God is. He's much bigger than what our small, minute, finite minds can comprehend. And I think that sometimes in our mind, our God is too small. As that book says, you know, we've made God to be so small, especially when we're waiting. Especially when we're waiting, especially when we're suffering, we make God to be so small. We think that he can't deal with our bosses. We think he can't deal with the circumstance. We, can't, we think he can't deal with our financial situation. We think he can't deal with our sickness. We think that God is so small, but here is the creator of the universe. The creator not of just our galaxy, but all the galaxies of things that we can't even comprehend. This is the kind of God that we serve. And this is the kind of perspective that we need while we're waiting. This is the kind of perspective that we need to know about who God is. That he is strong, that he's mighty, he's sovereign, he's able in our times of waiting. And we need to think about how we think about God, especially in times of waiting. So... Then let's go ahead and then look at 28b. It says, he will not grow tired and his understanding uh, no one can fathom. So it harkens back to actually verse 13 and 14. It says here, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scale and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? The second point here in this verse is to say that God is tireless and his ways are unfathomable. In other ways, in other words, his ways are higher. He can do whatever he wishes in his own time. And he's not part of creation and he doesn't grow tired or exhausted. 
When we experience delay, it's not because God doesn't know or that God can't do something, but rather his ways are higher. So what does this mean? Does this mean that we can't know God's ways? Is God unknowable? The Old Testament scriptures, such as Psalm 27.4 and Isaiah 55.6, tells us that we can know him. He call, it tells us to draw near to God. In fact, as New Testament believers, and I just thought this is so amazing, in 1 Corinthians 2, 11 and 12, tells us that we have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Then in 1 Corinthians 3.16, it goes on to say, even more amazing, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So kind of like what we've been hearing just in the past few weeks, that the Holy Spirit lives in our hearts. This, the Holy Spirit of this magnificent God who created the universe dwells in our hearts and in our lives. And doesn't this blow your mind? You know, I think some of us would go, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit lives in me. Oh, come Holy Spirit. Do we understand, you know, like, what does this mean? What does this mean? You know, shouldn't our lives make a, a, a difference when we have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts, the Spirit of God in our lives that can fill us and strengthen us as we wait? So how can we not even take advantage of this? And I think it's so much of what we talked about, like with uh, hearing from Pastor Peter, just, you know, when we can't, you know, that he, he can, that his spirit enables us. And it's not just this, like, you know, a little bit of power, but it's like the power of the whole universe that the Lord can, can give us and give us and strengthen us as we wait. Um, and I just think, I mean, it's just... I'm just left speechless when I think about this, like when we think about who God is, and it says here in Isaiah, who can understand the mind of the Lord, but the Holy Spirit can, and then the Holy Spirit actually lives in our hearts, and that we can understand God and be in relationship with him. So third, then, moving on to verse 29, it says that he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. So the Holy Spirit not only reveals to us God's ways, which is oftentimes very different from our own, but he also empowers us. It's like having at our disposal um, an electric saw, but then we choose to use a plastic knife because we don't realize who God is and who it is that dwells in us. A good friend of mine um, who's actually... Uh, with his father at the Mayo Clinic, and they've been waiting just the last, this past week, because his father has significant health issues, and waiting for tests after tests, and um, it's just been really draining. And he said to me just the other day, he goes, waiting is work. And that is so aptly put, because he was so tired. And when we wait, we can get exhausted. And God understands that, and he tells us that he gives strength to those who are weary. And it says in verse 30, even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. Youth and young men are most notable actually for their strength, but even they have their physical limitations. But in contrast, in verse 31 it reads, 
They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. So the Hebrew verb for to wait, kava, means to trust, to long for, to hope. It's not just passive waiting and doing nothing. Sometimes, you know, it's like you think waiting is just twiddling your thumbs and doing nothing. But that's not the biblical concept for waiting. Waiting on the Lord is hoping in Him, longing in Him, trusting Him. It's a life of constant, confident expectation. Confident expectation is what kind of waiting we're supposed to do. And yes, this is contrary to our notion of waiting. Instead of doing nothing, we're called actually to hope in the Lord. We're not just called to sit around doing nothing, but we're called to hope in God. So are we waiting for results? Are we waiting for circumstances? Or are we putting our hope in the Lord? This is what the clarification is, that the strength comes to those who wait on the Lord. Not waiting for circumstances, not waiting for things to get better, but waiting on the sovereign Lord who loves us, who forgives us, who will care for us even though we've sinned against him, who will deliver us, who's sovereign. That's who we're waiting on, and that's how we renew our strength. So we're not just waiting for waiting's sake. We're hoping in the sovereign and loving God because he's a God who's strong and a God who loves us and a God who sees us and hears us. But in our waiting, we must also acknowledge our weakness and that we need his strength. The Hebrew word for halaf, renew, that's what it's translated here, also means to replace or to change or receive anew. So we give up our weakness and he gives us his strength. So we surrender our plastic knives and he gives us his power saw. It's that same thing like, I can't do it. We take that in, but you can. So we let go of our feeble strength and we hope in him to receive his strength and his power. So lastly, in uh, verse 31, we see a promise that they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This picture begins with soaring, then it moves to running, then walking. So God here doesn't just empower us with great bursts of energy. Yes, he does. But he helps us to manage the day-to-day, the walking, the walking so that we don't grow weary, so that we, you know, he gives us strength to soar, but to run, but also to walk, to manage that day-to-day. So it's not always this dynamic thing, but it's a day-to-day dependence on the Lord, waiting on him, waiting on the Holy Spirit. We need him every day, and we must ask for his strength and his guidance and depend upon his Holy Spirit that reveals us his heart. As we wait, we wait upon him, and that's where our hope, our waiting lies. So as I was, when Pastor uh, Peter asked me to speak, he's like, you're going to share from your own life, right? <laughs> I said, uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so, because um, maybe he knows that it's easier just to work off a text and not get too personal. But, <laughs> um, but I, will, I, will get, I will get more personal here. Just so, for waiting, waiting, like I said, has been something really big in my life. I, uh, it's, it's taken me like eight years to finish this PhD. Doesn't even, like, it doesn't even count like my, you know, master's program that I was doing 
when I was working full-time and taking that part-time. So it's been a long time. So I'm pretty, you know, like, the fact that I knew him in high school kind of shows my age. <laughs> um, so it's been a long time in waiting uh, of what the Lord wants, you know, for my life and what he wants to do. And honestly, um, I didn't even know what was going to happen, you know, after uh, finishing this degree. And I was just... Uh, there was many times that I wanted to give up because honestly to see there's not that many positions as, in scholarship and you're just like, well, I don't know, is this really the right path? Is this really what God wants? You know, am I doing the right thing as I, I wait on God? And there was many times that I just, you know, wanted to give up. And I, I mean, I did. I took a, a six-month hiatus as well. I didn't, didn't touch anything. But <laughs> I was just tired. Um, but, I, you know, the Lord just kind of reminded me to come back and to, to really wait on him. And, um, and so, like, um, I know that it's, it's not about uh, the results or the circumstances that happen, but he's taught me through these years what it means to wait on him. It's not because whatever happens, the next step, there's always going to be more waiting. There's either going to be uh, the next job or the, the health issue or, you know, there's so much, you know, constantly you wait for one thing, it happens, then you wait for another thing and another thing. So it's, it's this constant waiting, but it's not just waiting, but it's now waiting on the Lord and trusting him and knowing that he's going to deliver and knowing that he's going to provide in the way that he sees fit and that I need to surrender to him. So like for this whole thing about my job, uh, search and how I found a job. I, it was just really, um, he's taught me like over and over again not to worry, but just to trust him and that he's got it. So the thing is, I didn't even know about, um, I didn't even know I had a position until my day of graduation. So <laughs> it happened on the day that I graduated, which was like a miracle. And it took only a month to get a job, which is in itself a miracle when you think about, you know, um, a higher education, it, they, they, they advertise a year in advance. So, like, it takes forever to get an interview or do anything. But the Lord just expedited everything um, in the right timing and when I really needed it because I didn't even know what was going to happen next in my life. I was like, maybe, I mean, I would joke with my friends, say, oh, maybe I'll be living on the streets or <laughs> will you take me in? Um, but, uh, but the Lord just provided. And, and I think it's not so much that he's faithful in provision. He is. And I've seen it over and over again. But what he's taught me most about waiting is that we're waiting on him. We're waiting on a sovereign God, a loving God, a God who knows much more than we do, a God whose ways is much higher than our ways, and a God who cares for us even when we are weak, even when we've sinned, even when we've turned away. That's the kind of God that we're waiting on when we turn back to him. So thank you. You've heard me say over and over again in the life of our church that every single person that comes to a new community ultimately take on this identity that we're sent people. When you get up tomorrow morning, God has an assignment for you. And then there are times when we send people out to different parts of the country or the world to live into the mission. And May has the wonderful opportunity to shape and mold 18, 19, 20-year-old Christian kids I will be praying for you. Uh, <laughs> and what I wanted to do as we ended the service is there are many of you that have been blessed by May, touched by her prayer, being a part of the prayer team, and also just being mentored. Come on up and join me on stage because we want to lay our hands on our sister 
And we want to send her out and commission her for this mission that God has. All right. Come on up. Yeah. This is my favorite part. Look at these lives that you've touched in the course of your time with us. Come on up. Come on up. Just go ahead and get around our sister as close as you can and lay your hands on her. I want to pray for her. Church, and I want to say again, the mission that God has for you tomorrow morning when you get up is not less important what May will be doing as she works in a Christian university to shape minds and hearts. And at this time, if y'all could kind of stretch out your hand towards our sister and those of you that have joined us on stage. Father, we thank you and a joy and an honor for us to stand up here and to commission your daughter, our sister, an aunt, to her spiritual children here in this church as we commission her out. Thank you for the gifts that you've bestowed on her. Thank you for the years of training and equipping. Thank you for open doors. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your faithfulness. We already know the impact that she will make in the lives of those young men and women that will sit in her class, that will be with her in coffee shops and the neighbors down the street that she'll touch. Because we know that she loves you, Jesus. And she loves your people. And I pray that you will use her mightily, that you will use her powerfully. And that we will hear amazing stories of the kingdom of God advancing in that small part of the world as a result of your servant. We thank you that she speaks of what she's lived and her singular focus on you, Jesus, even as she waits and has waited. And as she goes forth, we pray and ask, Lord, that you would provide her an awesome community, that you would provide her an awesome church community to serve in, where she'll continue to exercise the gifts and her passions. Thank you for these lives up here that have been touched by her. May we continue to reach out and touch lives as she, we've been touched by her. 